y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, from the Los Angeles Times, feature writer and host of the podcast, This is California, The Battle of 187, Gustavo Ariano, and immigration reporter, Cindy Carcamo. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guests. I'm so glad you both are here. No, thank you for having us. Thanks for coming. Um, To start the show, I want to play you both some audio, and I want you to guess where it comes from. Oh, my God. There's food trucks here. There's two food trucks here. I shouldn't have to be waiting long enough for a car to order and get food. There are bathrooms here. I I should be in a car. I shouldn't be going to the bathroom. There are camera crews here. I I should be in a car, not on camera. This is a place in L.A. where people are waiting for a car so long. There are food trucks in LAX. LAX. <laughs> yeah, Have you true. heard about this crisis at LAX? Yes. So LAX, one of the biggest airports in the world, uh, has been having really crazy congestion because of all the ride shares and Ubers and Lyfts. So what, a week or two ago, they decided to move the pickup for those ride shares to a place off of the airport. And you have to take a shuttle to get there. It's been hell. Have y'all heard about it? I might be the only person on the planet who has never had a problem with LAX. Okay. Do Americans not have cousins the way I do? Like you always have a cousin <laughs> to pick you up. You know, you call un primo. Hey, can you pick me up? You live in Montebello. You could drop me off in, in Santana. Like, okay, sure, do it. That's so, a good cousin. I, yeah, I don't have a good nice cousin, cousin like that. <laughs> no. But this is crazy because, like, apparently it takes an hour now to get your Uber. So that video was actually, uh, that was Benjamin Crutcher. He made a video for the LA Times showing just how crazy LAX has become. This is what's really weird to me. This is not just an LA thing. So recently the airport in San Francisco, SFO, yeah. oh, they had oh. to move their rideshare pickup because it was getting too crazy. Boston Logan Airport had to move all of their ride hail pickups to the top of a parking garage. And there's this larger issue with companies like Uber and Lyft. They totally screw up parts of cities or make congestion worse. And then when it gets really bad, they don't have to clean it up. No, Someone else does. Oh, man. Yeah. Our colleague, Laura Nelson, has been covering that. And one of the things I heard was some people were taking, like, shuttles that go to the hotels. Oh, my gosh. And then we're Ubering from the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me, my question is, should I be more angry at Uber and Lyft for making this problem or for us lazy folks who want our ride shares to pick us up right at the terminal all the time? We've stopped taking shuttles. We've t- stopped taking buses from the airport. We want this instantaneous yeah. on-demand car service. It's us, dude. It totally is. It really is. I mean, it's just demand, right? There weren't demand then. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. We're going to pivot, talk about some heavier things. Uh, There are three cases hitting the Supreme Court this week that deal with immigration, specifically the so-called DREAMers and a program called DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So with that, uh, both of my panelists this week are going to have three words on immigration. Again, my guest, Gustavo Ariano, feature writer at the LA Times covering Southern California, also host of the podcast, This is California, The Battle of 187, and Cindy Carcamo also a writer for the LA Times, covering immigration. Uh, Cindy, what are your three words? My three words are DACA might die. First, I guess, let's make sure that folks know what DACA is. DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It was an executive action that Obama basically did in 2012. Mm -hmm. It protects uh, a certain group of people, of immigrants, who came here when they were younger, 
either legally or illegally, mm -hmm. but are currently in the country without legal status. And it gave them protection from deportation and also the ability to work in the United States legally. And it might die because the Supreme Court might say it's over? Essentially, the Trump administration can end DACA for any policy-based reason. Hmm. But that's not what the administration did. What Trump did was in 2017, he issued a memo stating that it would wind down DACA because, they argued, not for policy reasons, but because Obama overstepped his executive powers in creating the program. So they said basically that Obama that, doing it was illegal. Yeah, basically that DACA is unconstitutional. So if the gotcha. administration were to write a memo announcing the end of DACA for any number of policy reasons. It would just be done. They could do that. And the court wouldn't even have to intervene. Huh. But so you're like, OK, so why wouldn't they do that? Yeah. Well, some people say that it's strategic, that basically they want the conservative majority of the Supreme Court to determine whether it's illegal huh. to create DACA. And if it decides that the program is unlawful, um, that would bar future presidents for um, basically restoring DACA. Oh, so if it goes through the Supreme Court and is killed there, yes. it stops it for good, possibly. Yes. So they could have done a quicker end on it, but yes. it might have been picked up again by the next president. Yes, And exactly. their hope now is that if the Supreme Court says no to it, it's done for good. Yes, yes. Okay. But even if, let's say, the court rules that it's constitutional, let's say they do that, they could, like, tomorrow issue a memo with policy-based reasons. And then end it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what I find really interesting, when I'm thinking about these DACA cases hitting the court, we haven't heard about the Dreamers for a while. It seems as if there was a moment where they were the focus of the immigration debate in the country. Right. Then they kind of went away. Right, Gustavo? Yeah, part of it was because they renamed themselves. You can't call them dreamers anymore <laughs> because dreamers infers that there's a good set of undocumented mm, workers right. and a bad set of right. undocumented workers. I think it's actually a very powerful argument because a lot of these people, yeah, it was very easy to like dreamers. Oh, Look at these, these young kids. Yeah. They're like a high school valedictorian working yeah. three jobs. They just want to make it. They're and there going was this to image of like a model immigrant almost. Exactly. Yeah. And that group bought that uh, narrative for a little bit, but then they fed all, into that. Narrative. They fed into they that narrative. That. They wanted huh. that, but then after a while, yes. some people, like I think, very brilliant minds within the movement, said, "No, it can't just be us. What about our cousins who were just as brilliant as us, but then they caught mm. up by the prison industrial complex? What about them? They also deserve to be in this country." Yeah. How many uh, people are recipients of DACA? Nearly eight hundred thousand. Eight hundred thousand. Yeah, nearly, and most of them are in California. Actually, huh. many of them in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So then these dreamers have been around for a few years now. Oh, and I'm sure the years. Yeah. Wow. And I'm sure the movement has changed over time. Right. You talk to some of these kids and adults. Yes, what are they saying? Yeah, right they're now? adults now. They're parents. They have children oh, my who goodness. are US citizens. Yeah, you know? So I mean yeah. it's a very diverse group. And yeah, and, and, and the thing is it's a mature movement now. So you have different schools of thought as to how to proceed. So it's a fractured movement too. Mm. I mean, you have people who are like, look, DACA is not enough, first of all. <laughs> and it's 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 only a band-aid. We need something more permanent. Mm -hmm. And not just for me, who's a DACA recipient, mm -hmm. but also for my parents mm -hmm. and for the larger population, for all mm -hmm. 11 million who are here and also the asylum seekers who are coming and basically everyone. But then there's like a whole, you know, there are other people who are like, wait a minute, you know, who are DACA recipients. Let's start with us and then we can see where we go from there. Piecemeal. Right. Mm. But the issue with that is that when DACA happened, there are people who have been following this will say that that population of immigrant youth that received DACA mm -hmm. became complacent. Mm. 
you know, um, they kind of got theirs. Not all of them, but, you know, yeah. that they got theirs. And they got their status. Yeah, they they're got cool. their status. They're busy. They're working. I mean, mm-hmm. people get burnt out by being activists, you know, and being out there in the streets and everything. And 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 they just proceeded with their lives, um, knowing that it wasn't permanent, but it was something. But and it felt permanent. It I mean, did. Like me it's kind of a mirage. the Obama administration talk about DACA and the Dreamers, it seemed like, okay, th- that group, they're fine. But, I mean, things change. Well, no, it's a mirage. It was always meant to be temporary uh, and renewed. Okay. You know, every yeah. two years. So these three cases, uh, they were filed in California, D.C., and New York. Right. Um, they'll be heard this month. It'll yeah, take oral a... arguments begin November okay. 12th. Do we have any way of knowing how this might shake out yet? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. And I don't think it'll be the end, no matter how it shakes out. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, here with two guests, Gustavo Ariano, feature writer at the LA Times, covering Southern California, also host of the podcast This Is California, The Battle of 187, and Cindy Carcamo, also a writer for the LA Times, covering immigration. Gustavo, you have three words about Prop 187. What are they? It's easy. 187. <laughs> 187. No, it li- it's the easiest thing. Cindy had a little bit You did bit your harder. homework. I did my homework. <laughs> I didn't even have to. No, it, it literally boils down to 187. Th- this whole argument that we're going to have with DACA, this whole issue about illegal immigration, all dates back to this proposition that happened 25 years ago. This weekend is the 25th anniversary huh. of Proposition 187, and that's the whole reason why I decided to do a podcast about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. So let's tell folks who maybe aren't from California what Prop 187 was and how it affected the immigration debate for decades since then. Proposition 187 was a ballot initiative that did everything from if you were a government worker, if you suspected someone of being undocumented, you had to report them to the INS. Mm. You could not get any social services as an undocumented immigrant except emergency health care. Yeah. No more welfare, no more uh, clinics, no more anything of that. And you couldn't go to school either, and, right? And this is the most important thing. This right. is what ties into DACA today. So what the 187 proponents wanted to do was make it illegal for undocumented children to get any public education, not just K through 12, but all the way through college. And it passed by a 59 to 41% margin. And this is what's crazy. So it passed, but it never ends up taking effect. It never went into effect because the day after 187 passed, uh, seven lawsuits went on both the state and the federal level. December of 94, a judge uh, puts a stay to it. 1997, she rules it unconstitutional. And in 1999, you know, we'll talk about the for- the governor who championed this, Pete Wilson, a little bit, but the governor that replaced them, uh, Gray Davis, he decided to no longer pursue an appeal with 187, and it died. So it died eventually. But the way that the debate over Prop 187 was framed kind of informed the way the rest of the country now talks about immigration, right? Because right. there was these visuals of like an immigrant invasion, right? Mm-hmm. The, the most notorious visual from that era was a commercial. It wasn't actually for 187. It was for the re-election campaign of Pete, Pete Wilson. Wilson. So he runs this ad and it starts off with grainy footage of folks crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border, yet requires us to pay billions to take care of them. It looked like Night of the Living Dead. Even So in my podcast, I talked to uh, the founders of 187, the political consultants, Barbara and Bob Kiley, and they themselves, themselves said when they saw that commercial, their jaws dropped. They said, we were just trying to make 187 about numbers. And, you know, We could have a debate about that, but they said once that happened, it was over. People knew 187 was racist. People knew this idea about illegal immigration. It was all based on race in California. 
But what happened after that, and, and we still see it now, there were these copycat bills that happened across the country, right? Even after Prop 187 never really takes effect. 187 has this amazing double-edged sword effect. The whole reason California is such a super progressive state is because the Democrats, they're all Latinos who came of age who got radicalized during 187. So that's what makes uh. us into the pro- progressive paradise, supposedly, that we are. <laughs> On the other hand, though, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the nation's top anti-immigration group, they learned from one. Mm. I, I interviewed the president, Dan Stein. He said, yeah, we learned both that these initiatives have uh, – people are going to vote for them. And we also learned since it got unconstitutional, we're going to make sure it does not get overruled. Something like this doesn't huh. get overruled by the courts anymore. Yeah. So, Cindy, how do you see the shadow of 187 over these young folks and adults who are now waiting to see what happens to DACA? Does that kind of inform what they're dealing with today? It definitely informs them. I think why we even have DACA Hmm. is because you have immigrant youth who basically took the reins of the immigrant rights movement Hmm. at a point where it was like dwindling, basically. Like they basically said, look, you older folks in the immigrant rights movement are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. We're going to take control here. And they staged civil disobedience, um, sit-ins. Against both parties. uh, Against both parties, right. They basically said, "Look, we're gonna we're not gonna call out our uh, you know just Republicans. We're gonna call out our supposed allies like Obama." Yeah, and that's how DACA happened. Right, and that's how DACA they pressed Obama. Yeah, they pressed him, and it's really because of immigrant youth that we have DACA. I mean, I I believe it. Some people will argue with me about it, but but really, it's because of them. And so, it really did help inform this generation of youth. Yeah, what is the biggest lesson uh, of Prop One Eight Seven? For me, 187 was really interesting. I think I was telling Gustavo this because I I went to Chatsworth High School and a lot of my friends were Anglo. And I didn't realize how um, uh, racist some of them were until 187 (laughs) happened. Oh. Yeah. And and, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. Look at me. Like, I'm your friend. I mean, yeah, I'm your friend. <laughs> I look a little white. It's You're true, one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. but, you know, you become an exception, right, yeah. sort of thing. Although we didn't – I just heard what they were saying, and I was like, yeah. whoa, and I didn't – I just didn't even mention it. Yeah. But, you know, I think I grew up kind of in a bubble in regards to – I didn't think there was that much racism. I didn't think that I would be ever alienated in that way, but I was. Mm. It didn't want to make become a journalist or anything along those lines, but it definitely uh, became a handy thing to know about yeah. covering immigration. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right, it's time for a break. Coming up, we're going to talk with the listener about how our national political debate has affected his local politics. He's a local elected official in Pennsylvania, and he says in many ways the tenor of local politics is directly driven by the fights happening in D.C. After the break, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Discover Card. You check things all the time, like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Support also comes from State Farm, whose agents know that your car and home are more than just big purchases. They're a big part of your life. You put the time into making them your own. So now it's time to protect them with your own personal State Farm agent. 
Not only do they truly get you, but they'll be there for you when you need them. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. Sponsored by State Farm. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM or by visiting statefarm.com. Wake up to a fresh take on the day's news with Up First every weekday morning and now Saturdays at 8 a.m. Eastern, too. Ten minutes is all you'll need to start your day informed. And now you can listen six days a week. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first to start your weekend from NPR News. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Cindy Carcamo, writer for the L.A. Times covering immigration, and Gustavo Ariano, feature writer at the L.A. Times, also host of the podcast This is California, the Battle of 187. Before our next segment, question for you both. Okay. When is it okay to start playing Christmas music? <laughs> It depends on what the song is. Okay. After yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thank you. After Thanksgiving. No, not before Halloween, not after Halloween. I just like, there's a pace and an order of things, and yeah. Thanksgiving deserves its due. I agree. No, yeah. I really do. See, I never liked Thanksgiving, so I have oh, no sympathy for it. Why really? don't you like I Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving? I I never liked turkey. Am I, it was, <laughs> it was, turkey is a bad <laughs> word. One, one day I'm going to write about this. Thanksgiving was the one day out of the entire year that my mom decided to be an American. We're going to do the turkey, the cranberry, the stuffing. I'm like, no, the ham. The only thing I liked was the ham. The oh, ham yeah. and the oh, yeah. rolls. Yeah, turkey but, and ham. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But everything else, like, no, why can't we make tamales? Why can't we eat? Like, Mexican Christmas is way better. The tamales, mm-hmm. the pozole, the buñuelos, all that stuff. Turkey, nah. But Wait, that was she the one didn't day. Mexicanize the turkey? No? Like, we she- would Guatemala <laughs> the turkey. How would you Guatemala the turkey? It was, my mom had this special stuffing that was made out of minced meat. It was basically minced meat. So it was meat on meat on meat with olives. <laughs> Original <laughs> olives. Oh, my God. No, Central Americans, they rule the turkey game. Really? Oh, my God. Chumpe. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Pan de chumpe. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Cranberry sauce in a can or homemade? Homemade. Yeah. yeah. I think my mom made it homemade. Again, I didn't eat it, so I'm just like trying to remember. <laughs> What's y'all's favorite Christmas song when it gets to that point? Anything yeah. non-Mariah Carey. Sorry. <sighs> I, lo- I can't stand the Mariah Carey. What? All I want. Um, I know. For I know. You is it's a like, beautiful song. I like that song. Uh, why don't you like it? I, because Cindy? they play it over and over again, and it gets stuck in my head. Like seriously, like it's the radio just plays Mariah Carey Christmas songs. We're a gonna lot. get hate mail. I know. Sorry. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's pivot. I want to talk now about local politics. Uh, every week we hear from our listeners, but recently we heard from a listener with a very interesting problem. His name is Dan Murphy. He reached out to us after we talked about Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg of Indiana. Uh, we talked about how in one of the recent Democratic debates, Mayor Pete took a more combative tone with the other candidates. And it got Dan Murphy thinking about the way that he approaches politics where he lives. Uh, Dan is an elected official. He is a member of the Borough Council for State College, Pennsylvania. That's like city council. That's the town where Penn State is. Hmm. And he wrote us to talk about how the tenor of our national politics is affecting him and his local politics in places like State College. So we called him up. Uh, Heads up for listeners. There's a bit of offensive language in this conversation ahead. All right, here's our chat. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm good, Sam. How are you? Pretty good. So when you wrote us to talk, you said that you were actually elected as both a Democrat and a Republican. How does that work? 
So uh, when I put in my petition to be on the ballot, uh, I got petitions from my Democratic neighbors uh, and friends. And so I found myself on the primary ballot on the, the Democratic side. Um, but in the process of campaigning and getting to know members of the community, I also asked for my Republican colleagues uh, and neighbors to consider writing me in um, as a candidate for um, borough council. And they did? And, uh, they did. And uh, okay. I actually was the third top vote getter um, on the Republican ballot, in addition to being the third top vote getter on the Democratic ballot. So I actually went on the general election ballot listed as both a Democrat and a Republican. That seems like a rarity these days, given our politics. <laughs> Indeed. And uh, especially, I think, given the the current context, it's difficult to maintain that balance as I approach my work locally, for sure. Has your style and the way that you talk about politics changed as our national politics has just gotten nastier? Like, do you find yourself a little more strident, a little more loud, a little more combative? I have my moments. (laughs) When's Um, When's the last time you yelled? Um, I yelled on Twitter a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> which, uh, I, I have not. Uh, I don't believe that I've yelled in person, though. I think the last couple of weeks locally has been a little bit of fun for us uh, as we go about the process of appointing an interim mayor. Um, oh. I've been accused of yelling. Um, You've been I've accused watched, of yelling. Yes, and I was perhaps highlighting language that was coded in ways that is meant to exclude people from being involved in the local process. Explain. As part of selecting a mayor, we um, appointing a mayor, you know, we wanted to have a conversation around what kind of guidelines or considerations we wanted to have for the person who would be appointed to fill out a two-year term. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I reviewed them, um, I, I found that some of the guidelines would not only render me kind of ineligible to, to serve um, as a potential mayor um, based on my employer and based on my years of service in the community and, and based on my lack of experience in, in certain areas of local government, um, but they, they really were kind of intended to maintain a status quo, and uh, that kind of started a whole thing. So that's when I yelled into the Twitterverse. Um, uh, what did you about, yell on Twitter? Well, I, I dropped my first F-bomb. Sorry, Mom. Um, <sighs> oh. Uh, you know, read the tweet. I, I, I read the tweet. Can you read the tweet? I'm I curious. Can. Yeah. Okay. Let me... Let's do it. Oh, here it was. Um, I said, uh, wrote a thread, but f*** it, to suggest a full-time employee of Penn State is incapable of serving as mayor of State College because of conflict of interest, bias, or bias is an ignorant and seriously misinformed take. Just because okay. it's a take shared by many doesn't make it any less so. Do you think that tweet was good for the discourse or bad for the discourse? I hovered over the tweet button for a very long time, uh, mm. admittedly, because I I see what someone tweeting um, has done to the political discourse. But I also know that I tweet out the agenda every single week for our council meetings and still only get one or two people to show up. Mm. or um, get only a handful of people to pay attention. And that tweet itself got more, mm. got more engagement than just mm. about anything else I have <laughs> tweeted about in public service. Wow. And, it, you know, instead of a handful of people at council meetings last week and this week, there were maybe 20 to 30 individuals there who all had opinions and, and really... You think because of the F-bomb tweet? I don't think it's the tweet itself that did it, but I think the tweet caught the attention. Yeah. Um, But I did think a great deal about it before I hit send. Hearing you tell this story, it seems like a microcosm for all of our politics right now. We're in this moment where everyone is angry. 
it seems. Mm -hmm. Everyone kind of wants to yell because we feel strongly about this stuff. We know that the yell may get more attention than not yelling. But we also know, ultimately, if everyone is yelling all the time, that just is bad. (laughs) So, like, what is the way forward in that kind of environment? You ask a great question that I'm trying to navigate and figure out for myself. Um, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate, they've got these, these large number of people who all need to vote and they need to get to consensus on something. We've got seven, right? These are people I know. Uh, we, we shop at the stores together. Uh, we, work, we work together. Like, you know, these are people that I can't just kind of stoke the conversation and then throw my hands up of any and absolve myself of any responsibility to help guide us forward. You know, I need to be part of the solution. And so, you know, uh, will I ever, will I never drop an F-bomb again in a tweet? I can't make that promise. Um, <laughs> but the fact that it was the first time I've done it in two years and I'm clearly still thinking about it might suggest that, you know, I'm going to check myself and I'm going to yeah. understand that um, while I might be using some of the angst of the moment um, uh, politically to help engage more people in the conversation, I also have a responsibility not to go too far with that uh, mm. because what we can't have is the same level of animosity locally that we're experiencing as a, kind of nationally. existentially as a country. Yeah. I do want to ask about what it's like to be you where you are right now as an elected official who may very well see some of the folks that were yelling at you at the meeting at the grocery store. Is it weird sometimes, especially in this moment of seemingly endless political acrimony? It certainly is weird. And one of the things I've learned through this whole process, though, is that because I have this immediate accountability that I don't think exists in uh, state capitals or in Washington, it has forced me to be much more thoughtful about my decision-making before I vote or take action on something. Mm-hmm. And as long as I'm able to have a quick conversation where I'm able to explain myself, um, mm-hmm. to be able to take in the feedback that they're, they're providing to me, and you know, committing to making sure that I keep that in mind, uh, but also not allowing the conversation to just uh, continue unproductively. Yeah. You know, I'm always okay. eager to engage someone in productive conversation that moves yeah. us forward. Yeah. Uh, last question for you. All right. You're someone who deals with politics a lot, more than most people. What advice would you have for folks like me out in the world who feel like all of our politics right now is a little bit too nasty and a little bit too loud? What advice would you give to people who say, hey, I still want to stick to my ideals when it comes to politics and stand on what I believe, but I also would like if the temperature were lowered? I think one of the, the first pieces is, is if, if you're interested in, or if one of your concerns about engaging in the political conversation or the political discourse is about the temperature um, of that conversation, the first thing we need to do is do a self-assessment and figure out where, what our read is, what, what's our temperature. Mm. The other piece is I have found that the young people in our community, they, they give me so much incredible hope. Mm. Um, I was mm. actually meeting with a, a class of sixth graders a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And they just asked some of the most thoughtful questions that I've been asked in two years. And um, I, in that moment, I was like, I need to spend more time with you all. Or like, I need to spend more time around the people that are, are, are trying to tackle these issues and the challenges in a way that's not just getting caught up in the news cycle, but is really thinking about where do we go from here and who do we position next to, to lead us there? Yeah. What I hear you saying is that you believe 
the children are our future. <laughs> Cue Whitney Houston. I, 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 it's true. I do believe that, yeah. <laughs> Dan, I am so glad that we got to talk, and I hope you have a really wonderful weekend. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, and, and uh, you do the same. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Sam. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, thanks again to Dan Murphy. Uh, He's a member of the Borough Council for State College, Pennsylvania. Time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? You are listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. After the recent mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, some 40 people around the country were arrested for planning violence. On the next Embedded, we'll look at one arrest. He sat next to me at lunch. So, like, I don't know if some of this stuff got posted while he was sitting next to me or, like, in my house and stuff, you know? What it tells us about extremism in schools. That story on Embedded from NPR. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Cindy Carcamo, writer for the L.A. Times covering immigration, and Gustavo Ariano, feature writer for the L.A. Times covering Southern California. All right, it's time for my favorite game. Who said that? Ooh, Who, said that? Who said that? Cindy, you've played before. Ah, uh, this stresses me out. Gustavo, it's your first time. <laughs> it's my first time playing, but I hear it. The game is really simple. I share three quotes from the week of news. Do you guess who said that or get the story I'm talking about? The winner gets nothing. Sweet. <laughs> All right. Here we go. First quote. It took me a long time, but I'm very happy being single. I call it being self-partnered. Oh. oh, 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 my God. Uh, it's some celebrity. Uh, it, it, it's it's a, she played, she was in the Harry Potter movies. Yes. Amelia. Oh. It's Emily like, yeah, something, no? Emily Blunt, Emily Stone. No. Emma. Emma. Emma what? <laughs> Emma, Emma Wright, Emma Not Thompson. Watson? Yes, yes. Yes. All right. <laughs> that was Emma Watson in an interview with British Vogue. And she was talking about feeling stressed and anxious about turning 30 because of the pressures on her personal life and being single, Ay, et cetera. <laughs> but now she says she's happy with her life and where she is. And she's happy being single. And she calls it being self-partnered. Good for her. Yeah. It makes me think of the whole conscious uncoupling thing. Gwyneth. Yeah. 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 Just call a thing what it is. Yeah, yeah. Why do you have to? (laughs) You're single, you're single. You're divorced, you're divorced. It's okay. Be happy. (laughs) This next one's kind of hard, so I'll give you two quotes. Okay. The first quote is Okay, Burma. Okay, Burma. Not okay, Burma. Not okay, Boomer. Boomer. (laughs) Okay, Burma. Yeah. Oh, geez. The second quote is. We apologize for the error and have updated the captions accordingly. Clearly, we need to start doing all office meme briefings. Oh, I heard about this one, too. I'm completely lost. Just just throw out what you heard about. Uh, Can't be the New York Times. Yeah, this happened outside of the country. It couldn't have been. It's where Lord of the Rings was shot. Oh, New Zealand. Yes. All right. Okay, okay. okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So this All right, whole, one, one. one, one. Yeah. Yes. So, <laughs> OK Burma was a misspelling of the catchphrase OK Boomer. Uh, this misspelling came from the captions department of New Zealand's Parliament TV. So, 25 year old Chloe Swarbrick was making a speech about the climate crisis. Uh, she made a reference to her age and the average age of Parliament, and an older politician tried to heckle her. 
In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer. Uh, <laughs> and then the captions from the New Zealand Parliament TV service misspelled it as OK Burma. Which is not fun. Which is funny because you would expect it's the New Zealand, you know, it's it's in New Zealand, so you would understand New Zealand accents. Yes. It's one thing because I heard it as like Burma, you know. <laughs> I, I, could, I could see that. Yeah, but... I could see that, but it's like they should know their own accent, so they they shouldn't have gotten yeah. it wrong. So I, I that's kind I of just... a boomer mistake, no? Yeah, <laughs> yeah <totally laughs> boomer mistake. Yes. So after this error, uh, the New Zealand Parliament TV tweeted, "Quote: We apologize for the error. <laughs> I think y'all are tied." Yeah, we are. This is the last one for all the marbles. Oh, man. You ready? And just guess what story we're talking about from the week for this one. What was amazing to me was how few people wanted to go grab him. Oh, um, World Series. That's over. <laughs> yeah. Another sports, another sporting event. Grab him. It happened during a football game. This it, week. Was it about a black cat? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> <Yes>. ESPN. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that quote comes from Jerry Jones. He's the billionaire owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And he was commenting on a very strange thing that happened at an NFL game this week. Uh, a cat got on the field at MetLife Stadium during a Cowboys and Giants game. Uh, the game was delayed. It was crazy, crazy, crazy. We actually have some tape of the announcers talking us all through the cat on the field. Oh, there's a cat. A black cat has taken the field. A black cat is running from the 20 to the near side, the 10. Now a policeman, a state trooper has come on the field, and the cat runs into the end zone. That is a touchdown. I love it. And the cat is elusive. This is the only time in my life that I've liked the cat. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, it it got more rushing yards than both the Giants and Cowboys this year. So they should have signed them or something. But I I always love the stories. It comes out every couple of years of just a random animal coming on the field and causing havoc. I remember, geez, it must have been 20 years ago during a New Year's Eve uh, college football bowl game. A dog just got on the field. It just started running around. Like no no care in the world and no one could catch it. So God bless you, Black Cat. (laughs) Um. I'm happy to announce that Gustavo won the yeah. game. Yeah. It's all good. Oh, I, knew it was, I knew it would happen. <laughs> you both did quite well. I promise you did really, really yeah, well. Yeah, you have to spell out one of the answers for us. I know. Said, we still I helped y'all a lot. I helped y'all a lot. It's okay. It's okay. All right. That concludes who said that. Gustavo, congratulations, but you get nothing. Gracias. Sorry about that. Hey, I get um, to be on this show, so it was awesome. Oh, I that's, appreciate that's that. That's my reward. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every Friday, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They do. Let's hear it. Hey, Sam. This is Vinny from New York. And the best part of my week was I just finished the New York City Marathon. Every single time during my training runs, I would listen to your show. And uh, the best part of other people's week would always inspire me. So thank you for that. I love the show. Have a great day. Hi, Sam. This is Emily from the UK. The best part of my week was going to see Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire in concert with live orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. The best part of my week was celebrating my husband's 27th birthday. I finally got my postgraduate job offer. After six months away, the best part of my week is finalizing a move to New York City to reunite with my husband, Jorge. My eight-month-old daughter took her first steps. My son, who's about to turn one, said, Mama. 
It's taken him a very long time, and it's been many months of Dada. The best part of my week was when my two-year-old came up to me and said, Love you? <laughs> and then he says, Love finger? <laughs> Love door? But whatever, it's okay. It's cool. I'll take it. It was amazing. Hi, Sam. This is Denise from La Crescenta, California. The best part of my week was taking my 88-year-old mother, my 90-year-old father, to visit my 97-year-old aunt. After lunch, we took a walk around her two-acre property. No one needed any assistance, and it made me smile and look forward to a future where I could do the same. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for everything that you do. Hope you're having a great week. Bye. That's pretty awesome. That's awesome. That's great. Really, really cool. Also, kids, they sound kind of fun. <laughs> one day are. I'll get one, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> First thing my daughter said to me, like a full sentence was, I see you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> Thanks to all those listeners you just heard. Uh, Vinny, congrats on finishing your marathon. And I was, I'm honored to have been a part of your process for that. Uh, Emily in the UK. Ksenia, Ashlyn, Christian, Kimberly, Emily, Kate, and Denise. Uh, really loved hearing from y'all. We listen to all of these that come in, so keep them coming. Thank you for sharing them. You can share your best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record the sound of your voice on your phone and email that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. Thanks again to both of you. Cindy Carcamo, writer for the L.A. Times, and Gustavo Ariano, also writer for the L.A. Times, also host of the podcast, This is California, The Battle of 187. I'm so glad y'all made the trip from Orange County to hang out with me. Thank you. Gracias. Come back anytime. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our fearless editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss, NPR's senior VP of programming, is Anya Grundman. Our engineer is Josh Newell. And we had special help this week from NPR intern Isauda Aceves. Thank you for listening. Till next time, I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. Hold up. 